UFC 270 is in the books. Francis Ngannou is the heavyweight champion. Davison Figueredo has returned to the top of the flyweight division. There is plenty to talk about, plenty to dissect, plenty to think about going forward. It is Sunday, January 23rd. I am E. Spencer Kite, and this is the Next Day Takeaways. Welcome, everybody, to what I hope will be a regular thing here on the Keyboard Kimura Substack newsletter. Um, a Sunday post-fight, a chance to sort of sit back after nearly 24 hours of digesting what transpired on Saturday night inside the Octagon to talk about some of the things that maybe slipped my mind as we were going through things in the heat of the moment, some of the things that have been brought up and discussed from the post-fight press conference and just social media in general, some of the, the takeaways that have really sunk in and, and taken root over the last, you know, almost 24 hours. And what better way to start this off than following UFC 270 from Honda Center in Anaheim last night, jump right in, main event, Francis Ngannou, once again, as, as he said going in, the champ remains the champ. He is the undisputed champion of the heavyweight division in the UFC, 48-47, 48-47, 49-46, where Francis Ngannou displayed the Ngannou and grappling. Um, not at all how I think anybody expected that fight to play out. Not a piece of his game that, that we had ever seen before. As John Anik and the broadcast team talked about, went into that fight with three takedown attempts or three completed takedowns in his career absolutely eclipsed that on Saturday night, using his wrestling, using his top control, using his takedown ability to win the third, fourth, and fifth round on two of the three scorecards. He got an extra round in there uh, from one of the judges as well to get the victory over Cyril Gaon, hand him his first loss, unify the titles again, and set himself up in a very interesting position going forward, given everything that has been transpiring between himself, his team, and the UFC. Before we get to that, we have to touch on the fight itself. I think one of the things that, that has been the biggest takeaway or the thing I've thought about the most since that fight ended and, and slept on it and continued to think about it is that I think we forget because Francis Ngannou has now been in our lives for a few years because we have a bunch of highlights that we remember and he's had now 14 fights in the UFC I think we forget that this is still very much a developing fighter. Um, Francis Ngannou made his pro debut towards the end of 2013. And so it's it's nine years ago. It's almost 10 years ago. And but, but the thing that we miss, or at least I think we miss a little bit, is that so many of those fights are so quick. So much is of, of those fights and, and so many heavyweight fights at times. And I think we miss it with with lots of fighters in this division, is that the development elements aren't there because the fights are so quick. We don't get to see those other wrinkles. We don't get to see the pieces that they've been working on. And clearly Francis Ngannou has been adding to his arsenal. We all know him for that vicious power, for his striking prowess. But we saw on Saturday that he has been putting in time working on other elements. Um... We weren't sure if there was a plan B. There is clearly a plan B, and, and one of the things that stood out to me in the midst of that fight, as he's completing takedowns, 
as he's trying to advance positions and put Cyril Gaon in, in even more jeopardy on the ground is imagine what happens when he has an even greater understanding of things like top control and how to dis disperse his weight and how to sink his hips down and kind of control a guy on the ground in, in addition to just being able to put him there. We saw the big slam, but we also saw some some technical grappling in there from Francis Ngannou that I don't think anyone expected. I don't think anyone went into this fight thinking, do you know how Francis Ngannou is going to win it? It's going to be a fifth round sweep where he moves into top position, defends a heel hook attempt a couple of times, and rides out the round in top position. It is a testament to the effort, to the work, to the focus and, and determination that Francis Ngannou puts in in the gym, that his team of coaches, Eric Nixick, Dewey Cooper, everybody around him have continued to work on because in this division and, and for a guy with his freakish power, there is the ability, there is the space to just decide, I'm good, I don't need to do anything more. And if I can't touch this guy up and get him out of there, then, then so be it. And through the first two rounds, it felt like that was what we were seeing. Cyril Gaon did his thing, staying on the outside, picking at Francis Ngannou, avoiding a lot of the big shots, avoiding any real any real danger at all. And through 10 minutes, it looked like we are on our way to Cyril Gaon being 11-0, defeating Francis Ngannou, becoming the undisputed champion, and ushering in a new era in the heavyweight division, a, a brand new undisputed champion. And then we got the wrestling, and then we got the changes, and it it caught me off guard, it caught the broadcast team off guard, I think it caught everybody off guard, and maybe it shouldn't have, because this is a guy that, that we remember, and, and DC talked about it in the fight, I remember that Anthony Hamilton fight, where he said, I learned that Kimura in the back, and I've talked to Eric Nixick about Francis Ngannou's ability to synthesize information, and his his recall of things and how impressive it is. They talked during the broadcast about these guys both would have been, you know, in the NFL, either on the D line or or whatever the case may be. And I know they did on the, the weigh-in show as well. Dan Helley talked about how Francis Agano would be kind of an edge rusher and and Cyril Gon would kind of be that Von Miller hybrid, that Micah Parsons type of guy that can put his hand in the dirt but can also be upright and be be a linebacker that plays in coverage and things like that. And I think that's true, but I think the piece that we miss in there is that speaks to their athleticism and their ability to, to learn and grow and continue to develop. And both of them are still relatively young in their careers. This was Francis Ngannou's 20th fight, but it's only the second time that he's gone 25 minutes. It's only the third time that he's gone three rounds or more. And so he's had a year where he's been in the gym or, or most of a year where he's been in the gym and been able to work and been able to continue to grow and develop these things. And I think we saw on Saturday night kind of a little piece, a little a little appetizer of the evolution of Francis Ngannou that makes him an even more dangerous fighter. And I know that we are all super reactionary to what happens and, and what transpires. And I've, I've seen a lot of I don't know who's going to beat this guy now. Cyril Gaon was well on his way and could have still won that fight, 
probably if he doesn't dive on that heel hook in the fifth round. I think that's going to be a thing that he looks back on when he sits down and watches the tape and has all the information in front of him and says, man, I, I had that opportunity and I didn't need to chase that finish. I could have rode out top position or just been more effective, taken my time a little more, and maybe I get that victory. It would have been a split decision win, I believe, had it played out that way. That's the thing that he's going to be able to look at and grow from going forward. But I do think this wrinkle, and, and if Francis Ngannou continues to work on this wrinkle, as we know he will, becomes another interesting piece. You can't doubt this man's conditioning anymore. You can't doubt this man's drive anymore. Because as much as he looked exhausted after the first five minutes, the first ten minutes, he went out there and controlled the final 15 minutes of this fight using a secondary skill set that we haven't seen before against an undefeated fighter. Eric Nixick said to him in the corner at the end, between the fourth and the fifth round, something along the lines of, I believe in you, we've been through too much shit. This is yours, go out and get it. That's not just about individual fights. That's about reminding Francis Ngannou of everything he's been through. And so to ever question this man's heart, focus, conviction when he's in there just seems crazy. And I think we saw that. I think we put those questions to bed on Saturday night in Anaheim. The other piece of this fight for me, and, and I do want to take a little bit of time to address, you know, the 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 elephant in the room or the the big the big story the big talking points that are that really dominated this fight going in and will cont continue to dominate this conversation going forward that of course being Francis Ngannou's contract situation Dana White didn't put the belt on him last night Dana White didn't turn up at the post fight press conference it seems really contentious Francis has made no mo no bones about his position and what he feels the relationship has been like. It has been impressive to see him speak so freely about it on various platforms, including The Daily Show on Thursday or Friday night going into this fight. It's a thing that's going to, has the potential to get ugly. It is a weird situation because of how UFC contracts work, because of the position that these athletes are in with this promotion. Um, my best guess, my ideal hope, I guess, is that everything works out and, and the two sides can find some way to work together because I think Francis Ngannou is too talented, too impressive of a athlete, of a story, of a person to not be competing on the biggest stage in the sport against the best athletes in the sport. That is the UFC. That is the UFC heavyweight division. And for the UFC, I hate to be so just cut and dry about it and bare about it, but there's too much money to be made here. And for a company that is repeatedly shown that the bottom line is the bottom line, to let this guy just walk away because of whatever these differences are, because of whatever the, the challenges in terms of ironing out the the demands in terms of other opportunities and pay seems misguided to me. Yes, as Dana has said for years, when one guy moves on, somebody else steps up. And that is very much true 
but it's not necessarily a one-to-one replacement. As much as there were pay-per-view stars after Chuck Liddell, nobody came in and was instantly that Chuck Liddell replacement. Nobody has come in and instantly been the George St. Pierre replacement. Nobody will come in and be the instant Conor McGregor replacement. There will be people that continue to do well and people that continue to grow and flourish. And we've seen that in recent years as athletes have have been around for three, four, five pay-per-views and start becoming bigger draws. But it's never a one-to-one replacement. And to let a presence and talent like Francis Ngannou go somewhere else, do something else, for whatever the reasons may be, it just feels to me, and this is just me, with no inside info, no scoops, no tips, no nothing from anybody, it feels to me like it would be a big mistake because there's just too many positives that can come out of these two sides continuing to work together that they that they should be able to and ideally will be able to get everything ironed out in a weird way. I think the fact that Francis is probably going to need knee surgery based on everything we heard on Saturday makes it a little easier because there isn't that rush to get him back out there or pressure to get him back out there where this this story can the story's going to persist. Don't get me wrong. The story's going to be there, but it's not going to be there from a pressure standpoint of the UFC wants to get the next fight book. They want to rush towards or push towards John Jones at International Fight Week or anything like that. And so in a weird way, I think the fact that Francis will not be able to fight gives them a few months to really drill down on this and figure out if there's a way to make this work. And my hope is that there is a way to make this work. Before I exit the main event, I do want to touch on Cyril Gaon as well. I said going into this fight, I picked Francis Ngannou. I said Cyril Gaon is a guy that, you know, for for all of his myriad skills and talents and abilities and upside and all of those things, sometimes it just takes that one fight. It's, It's cliche in sports that you have to get there and lose before you know how to win. And I think that's a little of what this was. We got to remember again, 31 years old, not even four years into his professional MMA career. This was his 11th fight. There was a lot of peripheral stuff involved in this that we talked about it so much from the Francis Ngannou side. And as he maybe got one foot out the door, but it, it never really seemed like we focused on, well, what is all of this like for Cyril Ghosn, who is the, the kind of replacement to Francis Ngannou at the MMA factory or the guy that's been brought a, brought along behind Francis Ngannou and now has the chance to sort of topple him and all of the pressure and, and emotion that goes into that for him. I think the way that he spoke after the fight, acknowledging the disappointment, but also that this is a learning opportunity, speaks volumes about his character, his mindset, all these things that we already knew. I think he will be the undisputed champion at some point. Um, I don't necessarily even think that it's a a situation of Francis Ngannou has to be somewhere. I would love to see these guys fight again in a year or two when Cyril Ngannou has a little bit more experience and has been through a couple more difficult fights and had a couple more tests 
And maybe that isn't out there. This was the first test that he's had in the UFC and really in his career. And he looked good for the first 10 minutes and had flashes at other points. And so he will grow from this. He will be back. I would love to see the UFC sort of ease him back a little bit. He's already fought a lot of the guys towards the top end of the division. I think Curtis Blades maybe makes sense, depending on what Curtis is up to next. I think there are some other fights that will be out there, some other opportunities that you don't need to just dump them right back in there against, you know, he's already fought everybody else that's, that's there, which is the interesting part. Maybe it's a guy like Chris Dawkins, though I don't necessarily think you need to get one of these younger guys that hasn't had a ton of top-end experience a couple of consecutive losses. So maybe it's Marcin Tybura, maybe it's Shamil Abdurakhimov, who I know is fighting Sergey Pavlovich, but, but we've got some options. And so if they go that route, I think a year, 18 months from now, he's very much back in the mix, very much back in line for another championship opportunity. And at some point down the road, he will title, 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 and he will wear that belt and be atop this division. Shifting now to the flyweight co-main event, Davison Figueredo defeats Brandon Moreno by unanimous decision, 48-47 across the board in a fight that I think was, was determined or decided by Davison Figueredo's power. It was that third round for me where he puts Brandon Moreno on the deck in the very late stages of the round, in a round where Brandon Moreno was winning that round. The knockdown kind of swings it the other way. And I think if you were watching on social media or following along on social media, you saw that was the general consensus. There was a lot of, did that sway the round? Did that, did that change things? I think we saw and we see that the answer was yes. These guys are 1-1-1 one, one, and one now. I said it all week going in that if it, if it ends up this way and they're literally one, a, one apiece with the draw, we need to do a fourth fight. I chuckled to myself watching it at home on, on Saturday night when Figueredo brought it up. I love that he suggested doing it in Mexico. Brandon Moreno sounds game. I think it is absolutely the thing to do. I talked about it in the newsletter during the week and during the buildup that this feels like the right time. Now, the caveat there is going to be that everybody's healthy. I don't think you can delay the division long term to do a four straight fight but if both guys are healthy and you can run this back in May or June somewhere along those lines then this lines up well because as much as there are contenders that are in the mix at the top of that division and we have Kaikara France taking on Askar Askarov in a in a couple of weeks time in what most of us all agree will be a number one contender fight. I think you have the ability to let that one play out, see where Alexandre Pantoja is at in terms of his recovery from knee surgery, and get these two guys back in there for a fourth time, the first UFC quadrilogy, to sort things out once and for all. Mike Bond of MMA Junkie posted during the fight, towards the end of the fight, that these guys have now spent an hour or so, a little over an hour, I think it is, because it went into the third round in the, in the second fight, a little over an hour in the cage together. And it's really difficult to, to say with any conviction who the better one is, who the better man is 
clearly and definitively. And I agree with that. I mean, we've seen two very close fights. The first fight is a draw because of a point deduction. This fight, if if you went back, and I will go back and watch this some point this week and probably put up a, a kind of scoring review or just a rewatch review of, of this fight. If you told me right now that you thought Brandon Moreno won that fight, 48-47, I don't have any arguments to make that, that say he didn't. I had it for Figueredo, but I can understand, and, and in watching it back, I'm really interested to see if my opinions change or how I would score each round sitting in and really paying close attention to each round. And so that's something I'll do later in the week. You can keep an eye out for that probably Monday or Tuesday. Try to get it done nice and early so it stays fresh. But I tell you, man, like this, this is, it's so great to see for the division. You remember a few years ago, the UFC was ready to shutter this thing. And before that, people weren't that interested because Demetrius Johnson was so far and away above everybody else and so dominant and for whatever reason, didn't resonate with fans, wasn't a guy that people were were rushing out to see, even though at the time he was the pound-for-pound pound best in the sport and, and getting these crazy finishes like the one on, on Ray Borg. But now people are invested. People are into this division. And I think to have these two guys go through this three-fight series and it be one, one, and one with with a very real possibility and very real need almost to do it one more time speaks volumes to, to how much, and that everybody's on side with this. Like this wasn't a thing that people were groaning and disappointed about when it got floated out there outside of my friend Tanisha telling me to be quiet when I said, if Figueredo wins and, and this is how it plays out, we should do it a fourth time. People are into this. People want to see this again because these two guys are so evenly matched such cool stylistic differences, but also similarities that it's just, you want to give me another 25 minutes of this in, in four to six months, sign me up. And if you tell me it needs to be a best of seven, a best of nine, a best of 11, I'm in. This is one of those matchups that if they had to keep doing it once a year for the rest of time, I would watch that fight every single time. And I know I'm not alone in that. Want to run through some of the other fights on the on the main card here, not spend as much time so this doesn't become too long of a podcast for the for the debut voyage of this series. Michel Pereira comes out, gets himself a victory, third straight unanimous decision win, fourth straight victory in the UFC. Said it going into the week. He has dialed back the crazy. He is moderating his lunacy. We still saw some of the vintage Michel Pereira. Uh, Superman punch off the cage, a couple of rolling thunder attempts. But we also saw a guy that is starting to understand how to manage those things and dole those big moves out a little bit at a time while still using his athleticism, his size, his natural skills and talents, just general technical, straightforward fighting, variety of strikes. And that to me was the difference in this fight. He drops the first round to Andre Fialo, goes out and makes the adjustment and starts really varying up his attacks. He's really working the body. He's working outside kicks. He's mixing in the crazy 
but also mixing in just jabs and right hands and keeping Fialo off balance, making him think more about what's coming his way. I think that was a big part of it as well, that once Pereira is able to figure out that Fialo is just coming with hands, he's a straight-up boxer, there's no kicks, he's coming forward, he's looking to land the jab in the right hand, and you don't have to worry, he's not changing levels, it gave Pereira the ability to just shift into a little bit more of an offensive mindset, a little bit greater understanding of, I can throw these kicks without worrying about them getting caught. I can move around and cut angles, and and these are the things I'm going to need to do to win this fight, because I can't just let this guy back me down. And that's growth from a fighter who, you know, at the start of his UFC career, and prior to his UFC career, was just doing wild shit all the time. Pardon my language, but he was just doing wild shit all the time. We loved it. It made for great highlights. It made for great, you know, cult followings on the internet. But it also resulted in a couple losses early in his UFC career. And now that he's dialed that back, now that he's reined that in a little bit, we're seeing a guy that is 28 years old, has a wealth of experience, is gigantic for the division, and is blossoming into a contender. This fight on Saturday night was originally supposed to take place the week before on the 2022 opener against Muslim Salikov, who is currently ranked number 15. Whatever you think about the rankings, fine. He's got a number next to his name. I think that tells us where Michelle Pereira is right now. I think it's where he should be in terms of the matchup next time out. And if he goes out and beats, whether it's Salikov or someone else in that lower third of the top 15, he then ends up with a number next to his name and a five-fight winning streak. And we're talking about a guy that a couple years ago was just the cult figure and the fan favorite who has now grown and developed and matured a little as an athlete and as a competitor and become a dark horse in a division where Kamaru Usman is just running through people and turning back contenders pretty quickly to where Pahara can be in that mix with Sean Brady, with some of these other up-and-comers. Maybe not quite the buzz of Hamza Chemaev, but in that pool of fighters that is moving forward that, you know, you, you get into that range of being in the top 10 and Usman's still on top and has beaten, you know, the next couple contenders in line, we can end up being in a situation similar to what we're at in the women's flyweight division where Valentina Shevchenko has beaten all of the top contenders. And so we're looking at number six and number seven, the way we did with DJ back in the flyweight days. And Pajara is a guy that we have to look out for in there because I think he's starting to put it all together. I think he's figuring it out. I think he still has that explosiveness and that wildness and that craziness. It makes him very difficult to prepare for, but he's also figuring out how to just use his natural skills, his natural gifts, and it's making him a very, very interesting person in the 170-pound weight class to me. Bantamweight fight, if you've been reading the newsletter the last few months, you know how I feel about the Bantamweight division. It is the best division in the UFC at the moment, bar none. Great collection of prospects and emerging talents and veterans at different levels and divisional stalwarts and we saw that on display on Saturday night. Saeed Nurmagomedov goes out 
gets a 47-second submission victory over Cody Stamen, who was a top 15 fighter for a number of years, fell out, I think, last year after his second consecutive loss, but is a guy that his losses in the UFC are all to ranked fighters, including Aljamain Sterling. For Nurmagomedov to go out and have this performance, this is one of those, and it's going to get lost in the shuffle just because it is, because there's so much else from this fight card that we are going to fixate on, rightfully so, understandably so. But this is a dynamic performance, and this is one of those performances that for me makes me sit up and take real notice. He's a guy that I've been kind of hit or miss on, or not necessarily sold on, to this point in his career. He was 3-1 and one ahead of this fight, but he lost his, his most significant challenge, let's say, against Haoni Barcelos, who was on this card. We'll touch on him a little bit later. I went into this kind of a little bit torn for a bunch of the week, trying to figure out who was going to win it. Ended up picking Nurmagomedov because of the size, because of the striking ability. We saw it very early in this fight. Lands a spinning back fist, then lands a spinning back kick, then locks up the choke. This is one of those fights that is just statement made. Like, they said it on the broadcast. Whatever, However you look at Cody Stamen and say, oh, well, this is three straight losses. He hasn't lost to Scrubs. He has gone the distance with Aljamain Sterling, uh, Rob Valishvili, and Jimmy Rivera. Three guys that have all been in the top 10, top 5 at different points along the way. None of them did this to them. Um, Aljamain Sterling submitted him, I correct myself, but it was later in the fight, the Sulev, Suluev stretch a few years ago. None of them did this to him. Saeed Nurmagomedov had him panic wrestling within 40 seconds. He locked up that choke to the point, and I love this choke, whether you want to call it a guillotine, a modified guillotine, a power guillotine, a ninja choke, whatever you're going to call it. It's one of my favorites because it's one of those chokes that if, when it cinched in, there's no escaping it. And you saw that with Cody Stamen. Before they even hit the ground, he's tapping. He knows it's locked up. This is a huge performance. It moves Saeed Nurmagomedov into that pack of fighters just outside the top 15 that are on the way up, sort of a little bit behind Sean O'Malley and, and Ricky Simone, who broke into the rankings with their most recent victories. We're talking about guys like Adrian Yanez and, and that group that is still continuing to come up there are veteran matchups in that top 15 at the ready. I cannot wait to see what's next for Saeed Nurmagomedov. That isn't something I expected to feel coming out of this event, but that performance makes me put the little asterisk next to his name, makes me circle him as the next time he's out. And I hope it. I hope it's pretty soon. I hope it's within the next six months because that's part of the reason that I've, I've been a little off on him is that we haven't seen the consistency, we haven't seen the frequent appearances, so hopefully that shifts and we get ourselves another player here in the 135-pound weight class. Last one on the main card as I take a sip of tea here to deal with my, my voice, my scratchy throat. Michael Morales defeats Trevin Giles by technical knockout, 406 of the first round. This was a hell of a performance from a 22-year-old kid. I, I don't know how else to frame it other than to say just invest in Michael Morales. Just, like, it doesn't have to be a lot, but just get a spot on the bandwagon now 
because I think in a few years' time, as he continues to develop, as he continues to add experience and round out those skills, this is going to be somebody that we're talking about as a maybe not contender, but at the very least a very entertaining just outside of the top 15 kind of fighter in this division. He's 22 years old. He's undefeated. And as much as there's a tendency to downplay a lot of the contender series graduates in terms of their upside or their talent and things like that, and it's it's understandable in these last couple of years, and we'll touch on that a little later. I touched on it on Saturday in my uh, Things We Learned column. This is one of the guys from last year that I had circled. And you saw why on Saturday night. He navigated some rough waters early. He got he got sat down by Trevin Giles, worked his way back to his feet. It was surprising to me that Trevin Giles clinched, just as it was to the broadcast team. And when he worked himself free, he kind of settled in and, and just did what he seems to be capable of. I don't want to overrate this victory because as I said all week and as I said going into the fight on Saturday, I don't think Trevin Giles' problem was that he was undersized or outmuscled being at middleweight. I think it is a an IQ, an application thing. I think we saw that on Saturday. The clinch didn't make sense to me. He's got some defensive holes and, and Morales exploited them. But this is still a very, very good win for a 22-year-old kid with go-go gadget arms in the welterweight division. One of the things that they were talking about going into this fight for Trevin Giles was that now he's going to have this reach advantage and this size and, and the speed and his, and his boxing. And we saw Michael Morales be better than him in all of those elements on Saturday night. And for somebody that is this young, that is this still working things out, that is, you know, first time on the big stage to beat an eight-fight UFC veteran in this way, if it's not the kind of performance that is going to make you remember Michael Morales and make a point of watching this guy next time out and being excited to see who he fights next and make a point of following this guy, I don't know what to tell you. Like, I, I get that it's hard. I get that there's a lot of names. But, like, it it's not as difficult as people make it out to be. Because this is a hell of a performance, and I've said it a bunch of times already, from a 22-year-old kid that goes out and, and smokes this dude that has some very good UFC wins and some very good wins from before his time in the UFC. You have to take note of this guy. You have to pay attention going forward. He looked that damn good. Get to the prelims in a second. Before we do, I just want to say that going forward, not right away, probably kind of once we hit the second quarter of this year, so we're talking April, this podcast is going to go behind a paywall. I want there to be something for the people that have been so kind to contribute to this, to this newsletter with subscriptions. Everybody that's subscribed, everybody that reads it, everybody that checks it out, I love all of you. I appreciate all of you. It means the world to me that the group of you read my work and, and share my work and value my work the way you do. But those people that are contributing, whether it's the five bucks a month or the 50 bucks a year, you guys deserve something for that money. I haven't been able to do that thus far. 
just because it's it's felt like I want to get this information out and I want to build this newsletter so that it gets to more people. We're starting to get there. And so as a as a return to you, as a as a present isn't the right word. This is what you earned. This is what you deserve. And so once we get into April, maybe May, somewhere down that road, and we're doing this consistently, this will go up behind a paywall. It will come out to you guys exclusively. So if you are not a paid subscriber right now and you've got that five bucks a month or 50 bucks a year that you want to kick your boy's way, it means the world to me. It helps me do this stuff. It helps me be able to put this stuff together on a Sunday afternoon and know that, you know, a little bit of money's coming in. If you do have it, means the world to me. If you don't, I fully understand. Times are tough. Money is hard. Just hit the subscribe. Get the free subscription. All the free stuff will come into your email. Means the world to me. Love you all. Let's get to the prelims. Shout out to Victor Henry. That's how I'm starting this little look at the prelims. I picked him. I'm not just giving him a shout out because I picked him and he came through with a 3027 across the board against Haoni Barcelos. I think he this that performance and Victor Henry as a fighter is a reminder and a testament to how much we kind of just get locked in sometimes on the big promotions and the guys we know. He is somebody that has been plying his trade for a number of years working under Josh Barnett, working under Eric Paulson, coming with that catch wrestling background, fought some good people throughout his career, fought some Japanese veterans in Japan, beat Kyler Phillips, beat uh, Albert Chimmy Morales last time out, and went out and just showed right away, looked right away like he belonged. There, There wasn't much of that fight where it felt like Victor Henry was outclassed. Um, Haoni Barcelos came out early and got a good little start and, and was looked looked to be the better man early. But as soon as Victor Henry settled in, it became the Victor Henry show and the Victor Henry fight. Tremendous performance that instantly, here we are again, bantamweight, throws him into the thick of things. And if you told me that Victor Henry versus Saeed Nurmagomedov, because they're on the same timeline, is the next thing up, I'm all in. Give the winner of that one a spot in the top 15 and let's just keep rolling. This division is amazing. Skip down. We had one more fight in the division a little earlier on the on the prelims. Tony Gravely goes out and, and does the Tony Gravely thing against Simone Oliveira. Gets a unanimous decision victory. 30-27s again across the board. It's just wrestling, man. This was one of those fights and, and I talked about it both last week and this week. Some of those contender series guys that, that got opportunities that came in with great records, um, both Oliveira and Gennaro Valdez, who, who lost to Matt Frivola in the first televised prelim of the night. In addition to looking at who they beat and sort of what those guys' records are, I've started looking at what their records have been after they've fought the guy that went forward. So how did everybody do after they fought Simon Oliveira? And that number to me is becoming more important than who they beat and sort of the records of the guy they beat. Because if you're beating a guy that, that hasn't beaten anybody and then takes a loss and decides, I'm not fighting anymore, that tells me a lot about that person and what that victory, the the weight of that victory for you. I thought that fight, Tony Gravely and, and Oliveira, would go the way it did. 
Tony Gravely has some holes. He makes some mistakes. He can be a little chinny at times, but he's a great wrestler, and he has a great ability to get in there and just wear on you. They talked about it in the broadcast. He's not going to rush through things. He's not going to overexert things because he has had some issues in terms of conditioning late in fights or in terms of cardio late in fights. He was measured. He just went out there and repeatedly took Oliveira to the ground, grinds out a victory, another good win. This is why I love Bantamweight. Tony Gravely is nowhere near the top 15, but he's a sturdy dude to have in this division. Every every division needs a Tony Gravely that's just a pain in the ass fighter for all these new guys that pop up and can string together two or three wins and get into a good place. Got to remember, his losses are, are Brett Johns, and I'm trying to remember off the top of my head here who the other one is, but it's someone else good. It's Nate Manus. He gets clipped. Nate Manus, another dude we don't talk about in this division who's who's on a roll, and I can't wait to see him back. Shout out to the 35-pound weight class, man. Shout out to Tony Gravely, a good win. And Victor Henry again. Bantamweight is on fire. It's going to be on fire the rest of the year. If you're not in love with Bantamweight and you're not paying attention, I, I don't know what to tell you. Speaking of a contender series dude that looked Absolutely terrific, though. Jack Della Maddalena, one of the guys, along with Morales, off this season that I was really looking forward to. Um, as I said in the build this week, I follow a lot of people from Australia and New Zealand on Twitter that are in the fight community and, and that are fight fans. And as he was getting in there, as he was getting ready to compete on the Contender Series, I heard a lot about him. I saw a lot of people being really excited to see Della get out there. That got me invested. I cover the Contender Series for UFC.com and so have watched every episode that has ever aired and recapped every episode that has ever aired. Paid close attention to his his victory last year against Ange Lusa, who was a guy that, as they said on the broadcast, helped Kamaru Usman prepare at times when he was still down at, at Sanford or, or at 365 when it was 365. Della went out and looked great, man. This was the performance that I think a lot of people expected. I know it's going to get downplayed because it comes against Pete Rodriguez, who is 4-0. But the thing I said on Saturday and the thing that I hope people remember is that he was initially booked to face Warley Alves. And that tells you what the UFC thinks of him. And that tells you kind of the, the test they want to see for him right away. I don't know how it would have went against Warley Alves. I don't know if it would have been three-minute technical knockout victory. But I want to see it. I want to see a fight like that next time out. That's how good Della looked. Goes out there. He switches stances fluidly. He's got sharp hands, power, speed, crispness, technique. Another one of these guys, and I, I think I touched on it a little bit at the end of, of my subhead on his fight on Saturday. I don't think we talk about how many good fighters and talented fighters and, and dangerous game fighters are coming out of Australia and New Zealand that are just starting to make waves. They Same as some of these other regions that were a little bit behind maybe Brazil and the United States and Russia initially as this sport was really flourish, starting to flourish and starting to grow. But they're catching up and, and Della at 25 years old with a performance like that on an 11 fight winning streak now absolutely gets the asterisk, absolutely gets the can't wait to see him perform next time definitely keep paying attention and and maybe a guy that has the has the potential has the ability to be one of the better 
uh, members of the class of 2021 from the Contender Series. First televised prelim, Matt Frivola goes out and gets the victory that I think a lot of people expected. That's not to take anything away from it. Um, Valdez, Gennaro Valdez, as I said, is another one of those guys that you do the math, you see who he fought. Six of his first nine opponents um, never fought again after after he beat them. That tells me that, you know, those, those wins don't count for as much. Favola goes out and just puts it on him. I thought this fight could have been stopped earlier than it was. Mike Beltran is a hell of an official, a great veteran official. Just had a bad night last night. Just had one of those one of those nights where it seems like he was a little bit slow on things and a little bit let things go a little too far. This was one of those fights. Frivola's the kind of guy that I know, I know there's people that was, you know, probably going into it. And, and I think I saw it on social media a couple times of like, I don't get it. Why is this guy the favorite? Gennaro Valdez is undefeated. This guy's lost two in a row. It's another one of those guys that you need to look beyond just the numbers. Got knocked out in his debut by Polo Reyes. Fights Lando Vedata to a majority draw. Then he beats Jalen Turner. Jalen Turner's on an absolute tear and is a is a kid that we need to be talking about more in terms of the lightweight division. Split decision with Luis Pena, it is what it is. Has that weird fight with Armin Saryukin at the start of last year where each of their opponents withdrew on the day of weigh-ins. They decided to fight. Saryukin missed weight, just gets out-wrestled, comes back in June. Gets popped by Terrence McKinney in one of the like in one of those fights similar to the Polo Reyes one. Sometimes you just get caught. Nobody's out here saying, or I'm not out here saying, that Matt Frivola is going to be a world beater, but he's better than people sort of understand or expected or or let on going into that fight. And I think he showed it on Saturday. A very good win for the steamroller. We get to the early prelims. Vanessa Demopoulos submits. Silvana Gomez Juarez in just about half a round. Um, I've been very critical of Vanessa Demopoulos throughout her UFC career or throughout her opportunities against UFC caliber fighters. Um, this was an absolute must win in my opinion for her. And it went exactly how I expected it to go. Gomez Juarez lost by armbar to Lupi Godinez last time out. Demopoulos has fought Lupi Godinez like, I, it's not MMA math, but when you understand what Vanessa Demopoulos does well, what she brings to the octagon, who she is as a fighter, this is how I saw it playing out. I did envision her getting popped like this. She doesn't have great striking defense. We saw that in the fight with J.J. Aldrich. Kudos to her for navigating that early knockdown and surviving and getting into her grappling to set up that finish going to be interesting to see what's next for her um she is back down at 115 which is her natural weight class after being up at 25 to fight jj aldrich maybe i'm wrong i hope she proves me wrong i want to see her go out there and continue to succeed because i do like sort of those specialists in these divisions that are still growing still flourishing um i don't think she's going to get too far up up the division but every division as i said about the Tony Gravelys of the world, right? Everybody needs, every division needs these tough challenges and these people that can can throw you curveballs every once in a while. Maybe Vanessa Demopoulos can be that person in the strawweight division. In the opening bout of the night, Niagara Falls top team, Canada stand-up, Jasmine Jasuda Vicious goes out and beats Kay Hansen, unanimous decision. 
it's kill it. Like I, I got two fights wrong on my predictions, and one of them was the lone Canadian fighting. I should probably be thrown out of my home country because I do this all the time and pick against Canadians. I was born in the same region the Jazz Davicius calls home. I mean, I just I got it wrong. That's all there is to it. I got it wrong. She used her length well, she used her grappling well. She was able to frustrate Kay Hansen for the first couple of rounds. Um, Kay has come out and said that she's planning on going back down to straw weight, so I, I'd be interested to see that because she was a little outsized, out, out-muscled in those first couple rounds, though she did have some success in the second half of the fight, especially the third round. The biggest thing here from this debut victory for Jasmine Jasudavicious, Jasdavicious, sorry, I keep screwing that up, um, is that she made a bet with her best friend when she was going into her fight for the CFFC title that if she got to the UFC, her best friend would get a tattoo of Jasmine's face on her body. They waited until after the contender series. They they said, you know, like let's get an actual fight. Let's you act. She's got the actual fight. She's got the victory. The friend's gonna get the tattoo. I cannot wait to see the follow up to that. That's friendship. That's loyalty. That's cool shit. Shout out to Canada. Shout out to Niagara Top Team. Shout out to the whole St. Catharines region. And congratulations to the newest Canadian in the win column in the UFC. Before we get out of here, I want to just take a quick little look ahead to what's on tap for the month of February. Please remember, no fights this Saturday. Spend some time with your family. Do other things. Watch football. Take a little break because when we get to the start of February, we're just going hard for a number of weeks. We're going through all of February and March without a Saturday off. We've got Jack Hermanson and Sean Strickland. We've got UFC 271 with Adesanya Whitaker 2. We've got RDA and Rafael Faziv. We've got Benil Dariush and Islam Mahashev. Then we're into March with Covington Masvidal. It's a big stretch coming up to get through the second two months of Q1. It's going to be amazing. I'm looking forward to doing all eight of those shows on Sundays, taping this thing, putting it out there for you. Please hit me up. Let me know what you think. I welcome all feedback, good, bad, or indifferent. I love you guys. I love this stuff. I appreciate all the support. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you enjoyed UFC 271. Most importantly, especially now in these continuing trying times, take care of yourselves, be safe, and be good to one another. We'll talk soon.